Well, good morning again. He is worthy, and we're going to hear about that from his word today. So if you have a copy of God's word, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab it. Make your way to Revelation chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, we actually have some available out in our Welcome Center that are free. Uh, you can take that with you today. Or if you have a friend that you've just been uh, sharing the gospel with and they don't have a copy of God's word, please take one of those and give that as a gift. And if you are a guest, special welcome. We're glad that you're here today. Uh, you're here for actually our last uh, day on our Prophets, Priests, and Kings series. And then we're getting ready to start a new series on prayer. Uh, that's one of our focuses this year in 2023 is prayer. We're trying to grow in deeper ways, and we're six months into it. So we've looked at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we've actually encouraged what fasting looks like and how to do that in a healthy way to honor the Lord in that. And uh, we've looked at several prayers, even started this series on Prophet, Priests, and Kings, looking at Hannah's Prayer and how all this was shaped by one woman's pain to be prayerful in her pain to the Lord. And so it's been a, it's been a great series, but we're going to continue our focus on prayer in the days ahead. This coming up week, we have an opportunity for you uh, and us as a church to pray faithfully for this ministry called Love Life. Love Life. If you're not familiar with Love Life Ministry, it's a ministry that uh, supports uh, foster care and adoption and pregnant mothers and, um, and just uh, the babies in the womb. And so this week, what we're challenging us to do as a church is to pray each day for this huge topic that's going on in our culture. And so for love for you to sign up, you probably got a flyer on the way in. If not, uh, you've got a table out there at the Welcome Center that you can get more information afterwards. But this week, we want to be intentional to pray each day for this. And then on Saturday, what we're going to do is we're actually going to go down to a local abortion clinic. Not to picket, not to riot, not to yell and scream, just to pray. We're just going to pray um, because we care about those moms, we care about those dads, we care about those babies. And so we want to be intentional to pray for that ministry. So I encourage you to sign up for that so that you can be praying this week, as well as be with us as a church family, as, as well as other churches in our area, praying down there um, this coming Saturday. We're also going to extend outside of just this coming week of prayer and be praying um, through the Bible. That's what our next series is going to be called, Praying the Bible. And I'm excited to start that next week. We're going to look at multiple prayers found throughout Scripture and how that can shape our prayers, how to help our prayers to go deeper and wider and broader to, to pray the will and the heartbeat of God as a church family. That's what we want to do. And so I hope that throughout the summer you'll make a, a point to be here so you can hear as we look at different prayers throughout Scripture and let it shape your prayer life in 2023. So before we dive into Revelation 5, let's pray to the Lord today. Most worthy God, we come to you now asking that you would give us a clear glimpse of who you are through this passage today. And as we look to you, I ask, we ask that you would change our lives to reflect you in every area. From our thought life, to how we spend our time, to how we utilize our singleness or our marriage God, I ask that it would be for your glory, for you are worthy of our entire life. So, Lord, speak to us through your word today. Let me invite you, no matter where you are in your faith journey, to take a step of faith this morning and ask that God would speak to you through his word in this moment of silence. Would you pray that from your heart right now, that God would speak to you today?
Would you also pray for me as we look at this passage in God's Word that I would be able to communicate it with, uh, with clarity and would serve you well this morning? Would you pray for me? Holy Spirit, would you open up our eyes this morning to behold wondrous things from your word? And would you also soften our hearts to receive that truth today? Speak through weakness now to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you have been here with us in this series of Prophets, Priests, and Kings, uh, you've noticed we've spent the majority of that in 1 Samuel and a little bit in 2 Samuel so you might be scratching your head a little bit being like, why are we all the way here at the end of the Bible? Why are we here in uh, Revelation? Like, why are we not back in First and Second Samuel? Well, if you can remember this whole series where we've looked at different prophets, different priests, different kings, if you slowed down a little bit, you'd actually find it kind of sad. I mean, it should grieve your heart just a little bit. I mean, the first priest that we see is this guy named Eli. And Eli, for himself personally, did... A lot of good things and following the Lord, but as he had sons that came up behind him, he didn't train them up to follow the Lord. And they rebelled against God, and they did some horrendous acts within God's temple, abusing God's people, and Eli did nothing. And so God actually brings judgment on him because he didn't live a worthy life before the Lord. And then you move on to the next guy, Samuel, uh, where he's a priest, and and Samuel did a lot of great things as well for God's people and sharing God's truth with them. But then you even see that he doesn't pass the baton to the next generation either. He doesn't pass the baton to his kids. And his kids actually rebel against the Lord. It's just a sad picture. And so where Samuel did some great things, he also had several ways that he faltered and failed. And then you look at the different kings. We just saw two. But the first king, King Saul, he lasted about two days where he did some good things, right? And then he refuses to wait on the Lord and gets impatient and does things his way instead of the Lord's way. And, uh, and so and a lot of tears and a lot of tragedy go out into God's people's lives and into the kingdom because of Saul's hardness of heart and not following the Lord. And then there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimpse of hope that you saw, that we saw, when King David comes on the scene. A man after God's own heart. And we're like, yes, he's going to do some things right. This is going to be amazing. Like now there's this glimmer of hope. But then last week we saw that David failed mightily. I mean, he coveted, he lied, he murdered. He did a lot of evil things. He committed adultery, deceived people. As we read and we saw last week, even he wasn't a worthy person. And it doesn't get much better. If you continue to read the Old Testament, and someday I'd love to teach through First and Second Kings, but you have 41 more kings that just continue to get worse and worse and worse. People just not worthy in their life. So it doesn't get better. But, but... David remembers that there was a promise, a promise given to him, a covenant that was made that we looked at, that there would be a worthy king that would come from his line, that would bring peace and restoration, it would reign forever and forever. We just haven't seen that king yet. But that's where we turn to in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, we're going to see the worthy king. So let's look at verse 1. You follow along as I read this text. 
It says, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is the fulfillment of the promise to David. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that were sent out into the earth, which I know that's weird. Give me a minute. We'll get to that and explain that a little bit, all right? Verse 7, and then he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living elders and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. This week as I was praying for you, and even this morning as I was praying for for us as a church, my desire is that we would look and see Jesus as worthy, the truly worthy worthy one of all of our lives. And that as we see him as worthy, as this passage talks about, it would practically live out in our lives day in and day out. So the question I want to answer first is this, what makes Jesus a worthy king? What makes Jesus a worthy king? I believe that this passage gives us a number of different things that shows us his worthiness. And first is this, he is worthy because he renews and he restores. He renews and he restores. You see, you have kind of this odd picture of what's going on here with this scroll that's in the right hand of God the Father. But this scroll is an extremely important scroll. It's mentioned in multiple books. You find it in the book of Daniel, talked about the scroll, and you see it in a kind of a, a, a pretense in Isaiah. You see it in multiple places, but then you find it here in more detail in the book of Revelation. But what we've got to understand about the scroll, what's so important about this scroll is that this is the scroll that unveils God's final plan of judgment and redemption. On this scroll, as it's written on the front and the back, what you'd find is you would roll it out a little bit and then there'd be a seal and you'd break it and you'd roll out a little bit more and there'd be a seal and you'd break it, is God's final plan to kind of wrap up all of time. And what you find in this is this is how he is displaying his justice and his mercy as he moves to renew and to restore his creation. You see, wrapped up in this scroll is the the end of injustice and pain and suffering and death. And renewal comes from this. 
So this scroll is extremely important. As he sits there, and you hear who is worthy to open the scroll, you find that there's no one. That's what it tells us. No one. And he gives us specifics here in verse 2. Who's worthy to take it? Verse 3 tells us, no one in heaven above or on earth below or even under the earth. No, no angel that's in heaven, nobody who has already passed and is under the earth or those who are currently living on earth. There's no one who is worthy to bring about this restoration and this justice and this peace and this renewal. Nobody. Now, I want us just to pause and let that truth settle on our hearts for just a second. Like, take yourself and put yourself there at the throne and realizing what's at your fingertips is hope and peace and the end of pain and the end of death and the end of suffering. It's right there. You can see the scroll in which it is written how it's going to happen. There it is. It's right there in front of you. And there's no one who has the power to bring it about. And John, who's the author of this, one of the disciples of Christ, looks around and just think what he would have seen. Think what we would see if we were standing there. You could look around as the angel asks, who's worthy to open this scroll? And you could say, well, you know what? Abraham. Look, look, Abraham, he's the father of our faith. Like, this guy took huge steps of faith to follow God. Abraham, surely, surely he is worthy to open the scroll. Abraham would put his head down and say, I can't do it. I've sinned, and I've fallen short of the glory of God. I, I can't open the scroll. I can't bring about this renewal and this refreshment I can't restore things back to the way they should be. Okay, well, maybe not Abraham, but what about Moses? Moses led God's people through the exodus and out of slavery. Moses literally walked into this water and it parted so that people could walk through. Like, surely he, if he can lead people out of slavery, lead them into the promise or lead them through the wilderness towards the promised land, surely he has the ability to be able to open the scrolls. I mean, the scriptures say that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Surely he is worthy. But Moses could respond and say, I'm not worthy. I disobeyed the Lord. I rebelled against the Lord. I couldn't even lead God's people into the promised land because I failed. I couldn't lead God's people into the promised land. I certainly can't lead this world out of its brokenness. I'm not worthy. Well, what about David, Right? This is the, the best king that Israel had seen, the one that brought economic flourishing, the one that turned many people's hearts to the Lord, even passages that we read today that turn our hearts to the Lord. Certainly King David is worthy to walk up to the king of all kings and say, I'll open the scroll. But he can't do it either. You see, he's not worthy to bring about this kingdom. He failed at refining God's kingdom. You fast forward just a little bit and you get to the New Testament. What about this guy, John the Baptist? The one who Jesus said was the greatest prophet who ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, Jesus spoke that about him. Surely he could walk up and say, well, Jesus said, I am worthy. You know, I'm the, the most worthy prophet. So sure, certainly I can open the scroll and break these seals to bring about this renewal and refreshment. But if you ask John, are you worthy? He'd say, No. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie a sandal, let alone open the scroll that brings about refreshment and renewal to this broken creation. 
I'm not worthy. What about Peter, the kind of leader of the leaders of disciples, right? The one in which Jesus encouraged and said, this truth of me being the rock, you're going to proclaim it to the world, and so you're going to be one of the foundation kind of pillars to the church. Certainly Peter could do it. Peter's like, no, not forsaken and abandoned the Lord many times, and he's been faithful to restore me. I am not worthy. What about Paul? Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, one of the greatest missionaries ever to walk the face of the earth, sharing the gospel and seeing churches planted and lives saved. Surely, surely Paul is worthy to open the scroll. Somebody, right? Paul would say, I'm not worthy. I'm the chief among sinners. I can't do it. Well, bringing it to contemporary times for us, look around. I mean, this is everybody. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. We can look and say, well, Mother Teresa, like she's got a famous name and she served a lot of people. She did a lot of good for this world. Certainly, she's worthy because she impacted a lot of lives. Or what about Billy Graham, the one who's proclaimed the gospel to maybe more people in the history of the world than anyone else? Certainly, Billy Graham has the ability and the worthiness to go and to open the scrolls. But nobody can. Nobody can. Nobody's worthy. We aren't worthy. And this is why John weeps loudly, verse 4 says. He weeps loudly. Which, when you kind of read this on the surface, you might say, John, what's the big deal? Like, why in the world are you crying? It's not just like you're shedding a tear. Like, you are like weeping loudly at this. Why? Well, remember, if you had the the, the, the renewal of life, and justice, and peace, the refreshment that our souls desperately long for there at your fingertips, and then you couldn't have it? If you're standing there and you realize that the hope that you had waited for for so long now you'll never see, I mean, that would and should make us cry and weep. And that's where John is. He's weeping. Man, my heart longs for this. I mean, imagine the things that John has seen in the first century. People martyred for their faith. Husbands seeing their wives killed or wives seeing their husbands killed for their faith. Those that were struggling in so many different ways. And John sees this is the solution. And here it is. This is what we've been promised. It's right here. And to see that there's nobody worthy to open the scrolls causes him to weep loudly. But then there's hope. Hope in verse 5, where it says, weep no more. Weep no more. God will wipe away the tears from our eyes, from that injustice, from that pain, from that suffering, from that death. He will do that. Weep no more. Why? Because there is one who is worthy He's worthy. There is one who is worthy to restore and renew all things. And it describes him. In verse 5, it says that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the roots of David. See, I love that it calls him the root of David, the root of David here. It's not just that he's a part of the family tree. No, this is where it all started. You see, Jesus is the, the God who made the promise to David that he would come and reign on that throne one day. That he would bring about all that our hearts long for and more. 
He is the root of David. This is the fulfillment of the promise. The one that made that promise is the one that's going to keep that promise and reign on that throne. It is Christ. And as he is, as John's told to weep no more, says, look and see this lion. But did you notice? When he looks, he doesn't see a lion. Look, look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. And as John stands there and he wipes the tears away from his eyes, he looks up expecting to see a lion and he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. What I want us to see this morning is this picture of Jesus. That yes, he's the conquering lion. The greatest one in the landscape of all human history. But in order to be the conquering lion, he had to be the suffering lamb. They go hand in hand. In order for Jesus to conquer and be able to take the scroll, he had to be able to pay the price for your sins and for my sins. In order to to make us united with a holy God, to bring about this restoration and healing that our hearts long for and that our eyes clearly see in the brokenness of this world. In order to do that, he had to be the suffering lamb. You see, him going to the cross was not an option for him. It was the plan all along. This was a plan for God to become man and walk this road and bear the cross and die to pay for our sins that we might be restored and renewed. You see, there's a lot of people who look at Jesus and see him as either the lion or the lamb and not both. There's people that will look and say, well, surely Jesus, this meek and mild baby in a manger. Yeah, he, he went through a lot of suffering, and there's a lot of sadness and a lot. He's the weak little lamb. He was a good man, but he didn't really have the power to do anything. Some people believe that. And others say, well, no, 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 he's not the lamb that was slain. He was just a mighty lion who was a prophet that spoke. This is what Islam preaches. This is what they'll tell you. Yeah, Jesus was a good prophet. He was a mighty speaker. But he didn't go to the cross. No, 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 no. God wouldn't allow him to die like that. No. But that is not how the Bible shows us who God is. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He comes from the root of David. See, he comes. He comes to restore. He comes to renew. This is why Jesus is worthy, the worthy king. This isn't the only reason he's worthy. He's also worthy because he reigns and rescues. Jesus reigns and he rescues. Look back at the end of verse 5. After he calls him the, the root of David, it says he has conquered. He's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. All right, I love studying the Bible and, and languages and the New Testament is written primarily in, in Greek or in Greek, and so I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson today, okay? And you know what? You're going to feel a little bit smarter than you even realized when you came in, because you already know a little Greek, okay? So this word for conquered in my Bible, your Bible might have like triumphed or prevailed. Uh, you know this Greek word. This Greek word here comes from a word that we use often named Nike. Nike. Nike literally means triumph or victory, conquered. And so what it's saying here is Nike, he has conquered. And that's the reason why Nike chose to, to use that as their term for their shoes. 
Like if you use our running shoes, you'll conquer the, the track. I've got Nike golf shoes, and I have yet to conquer golf, okay? I've tried. I can't do it. But that's the, what they're going for when they chose the word Nike. And that word for Nike comes from the scriptures that our God has conquered. So as you see shoes, if you see this logo, I want that to come back to your mind. The lamb who was slain so that he could conquer. For he's worthy to open the scrolls. He's worthy. See, it says that he has conquered. And then it uses this weird illustration and this weird language to talk about how he rules and reigns. How he has conquered. It talks about seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits. Let me just speak to this for a second. So specifically in the book of Revelation, this word seven, and honestly in the entirety of the Bible, seven is used so many times to talk about completion. Uh, the, the week that we still use today is seven days. This is the way God created it. This is the way it started. Seven days, the number of completion. The week ends and it starts. And throughout Scripture, you see seven talking about perfection or completion time and time again. Now, don't run too far down this, like, numbers road in numerology. Sometimes in the Bible, numbers are just numbers. Like when it says that the disciples caught, like, 134 fish or whatever the number is, it just means they caught 134 fish, okay? Or uh, 2,000 people came to know the Lord. It's just 2,000 people came to know the Lord, okay? So don't read too far into it. But here, with this illustration and imagery behind it, it talks about seven horns, it talks about seven highs and seven spirits, all this is talking about how God has conquered and he reigns over all these areas. So when it talks about seven horns right here, uh, horns at that time you would think about in, um, in the like, animal kingdom. The, the alpha male was the one with the largest horns, the one that would reign over the herd. The one that could crush those that came in opposition against it or would harm the pack. So you would look at horns and a lot of imagery that would have like huge horns that's showing like the power and the might behind something. And here it's saying he's got complete power and complete might. That Jesus who is worthy has the power over all of creation, over all of the animal kingdom. He has complete power over all of that. And then it says he has seven eyes, which is really odd and really weird to think about. Seven eyes, that's kind of weird. But what it's saying is that God completely sees all things. That God can see through time and eternity, and he knows everything. That God can see through our outer appearance and to the depths of our hearts. He sees all of those things. And as it talks about the seven spirits of God going out to all the earth, it's saying God over all the earth. He rules and he reigns over all things, for he has conquered as the lion and the lamb who was slain. He's worthy. He's worthy. And because he is worthy, he chooses to rescue. Now, we've become so familiar in hearing that our God is a God who loves, but we forget oftentimes that, man, the power and the might of God, he didn't have to. God chooses to love us, and he, in his power and in his might, he expresses his love by rescuing us. Did you see that in verse 9? The song that they're singing out and praising the Lord for he says, you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God. God uses his power and his might to rescue, to rescue. And not just rescue like, mm, here's a little tiny group of people. Look at the language it uses. He rescues people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. 
This is why we as a church have the, the statement that we exist to take the gospel from neighborhoods to nations. This isn't our desire. This is God's desire. We're just trying to be obedient to God's will. He desires to rescue, to ransom, to redeem people from every tribe and every single nation. How does he do that? How does God do that? Through his blood. You were slain, verse 9 says, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. He was slain. This is speaking where Christ went to the cross and died for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is what he did. And Jesus, you realize this, Jesus still bears those scars to this day in heaven. That's why John looks up and he sees a lamb like he's been slain. See, Jesus still bears those marks and those scars. When Jesus was resurrected, he tells the disciples, look, you want to feel the scars? They're here. As Jesus ascends and goes to heaven, those scars are still there to remind us that he is worthy because he died in our place to forgive us of our sins in order to rescue us and to redeem us. You see, these aren't scars of defeat. These are scars of conquering. These aren't scars of humiliation that Jesus has to bear for all of eternity and be humiliated. No, these are scars of conquering, for he's the lamb that was slain. He is worthy. He's worthy. My question is, do you know, do you know this worthy king? Do you know this king? And I'm not saying, do you know facts that the Bible says about this king? But do you see him as worthy of all of your life? Do you know this king? I plead and I beg you to know him if you don't. That you would listen to his word and that you would trust it to be true and to believe that somehow in some way when he hung on the cross, if you confessed your sins, that that counted for you. That you confess and repent of your sins and know that his scars have borne your pain and bore your sins. That you believe that. That's what it means to know this king. And I plead and I beg you with that because if you know this king, what awaits you, what awaits us as believers is beauty. We have a restoring and a renewing where all the, the broken things in this world are made right. We experience a rescuing and a redeeming through him because of his blood that was shed. We find that forgiveness that our soul is longing for. We find it. But if we don't look to the worthy king, then all we find is brokenness in this world. It's all we find. And some of you, maybe a friend invited you and you don't believe in God. Maybe you're tuning in online, kind of stumbled across this. And you're like, well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in this, like, worthy God. I plead with you, please, to look to him and to believe him today. Because if not, all you have is helplessness and hopelessness before you. You don't have to take my word for it. You might be what are you talking about, Ryan? No, 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 no. Don't listen to me. Listen to a a man who was a, a, a great mind, Bertrand Russell. He actually, sadly, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. He's one of the most notable atheists of the 20th century. Listen to what he says if you don't follow this worthy king. He said at the end of the, his life, this is what he said as he described his life on his deathbed. These are his words, not mine. You'll see it on the screen. But he said this, I have nothing to hang on but a grim, unyielding despair. 
Because if there is no God, and we're just some product of our creation, and we're just in this cycle where we've been here for a little while, and then we'll go away, and someone else will move on. It's just this endless cycle. This is where unbelief will take you. Where you will weep, and you will weep loudly. But there will not be anybody to tell you, weep no more. Weep no more. Unless you come to the worthy king. And if you come to the worthy king, who is worthy of all of your faith, he is worthy of your faith, you find hope. You find hope like you've never had. The one that will wipe away those tears for your, from your eyes. He replaces your hopelessness and fills you with deep hope for him. He is worthy of your faith. This is practically what you do with this. Knowing that God is worthy, what do you do? You trust him with your faith. You take out that step and you're saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner. And you have made a way, not through my works, but through your work on the cross and through your resurrection. And so I trust in you. I, I look at you and see you as worthy of my faith. You don't have to understand every single thing in order to understand the step you need to take is to trust in him to forgive you of your sins. He is worthy of your faith. And church family, I would say, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then you need to hear that he is worthy of all of your life. All of your, the entirety of your life. He is worthy of your worship. You see, this passage in chapter 5, you see worship all throughout. And it's not just through song, although you see it in song. But look back through this passage with me. You see that there's praise and there's confession. John is sitting there and he's like, I'm not worthy. And the angels are like, we're not worthy. This is confession. They're not worthy. But then there's praise. There is one who is worthy. They're proclaiming truth with their mouth. This is worship. When we proclaim truths about God to others, we're not worthy, but he is worthy. This is sharing the gospel. This is what it looks like to worship with our lives. But you also see that there's actually tangible physical action. That some fall down before the throne and they worship. Other passages in Revelation, you see people raise their hands in worship as surrender. You are worthy of everything. I hold on to nothing. All of it's yours. This is worship to him. You see that they actually play harps. You see that in the verse as well. In verse 8, they play harps for the Lord. <laughs> this is worship when we play instruments to the Lord. And then look carefully at verse 8, because it applies to where we're going as a church in 2023. Look, and there's these golden bowls, and they're full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Your prayers are worship to the Lord. You're like, wait, when I bring my, my request to God... And I, and I ask him for things? That's worship? Yes, because it's you trusting in the one who can provide for you. Church families, we focus on prayer. Do not think too lightly of your prayers. God could have described prayers in any way he wanted to. He could have said your prayers are kind of on a chalkboard that he looks up there and he sees and he reads all of our prayers. He could have said there's a massive file cabinet that if you crack open, that you'll look and you'll see all the prayers throughout all the human history and you can pull it out and look at the different prayers. So they're on these like neat index cards that go down the line. He could have described your prayers and my prayers like that, but he doesn't. 
he describes our prayers as an aroma, as a smell that goes up into the nostrils of the worthy king. Have you ever realized the, the beauty of your prayers? Man, all that God would give us the eyes to be able to see our prayers the way that he sees our prayers, as worship to him. All that we would pray in such a way. See, in this passage, you find music, you find praise, you find confession, you find thanksgiving, you, you find prayers, you have everything because Jesus is worthy of everything. And this is what worship looks like for us. All that we would, oh man, that we would see that he is worthy of far more than our church attendance. And, and church attendance is something he commands us to do, that we would not forsake the assembly together of believers, but that we would come together week in and week out, that our heart would be encouraged and reminded of the truth, that our heart wouldn't be deceived by the sinfulness of the world. He tells us to gather together, but he is worthy of far more than just church attendance. He's worthy, far more worthy than just a casual devotion or a lukewarm contentment to him. He is worthy of our entire life, our entire life. And that's what Revelation chapter 5 is showing us. And you're going to see all of heaven is proclaiming that and all of earth is proclaiming that. Look with me quickly in verse 12. You see the angels, thousands upon thousands, they're all singing of his worthiness. And they say, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the entirety of your life, all of your strength all of your finances, all of your thoughts and wisdom, all that you have, it is to worship and to glorify him. And then in verse 13, you see it looks at all of creation, crying out to him as worthy, to him who sits on the throne, the lamb be blessing and honor and glory for how long? Forever and ever. Amen. He is worthy of all of our lives. He is worthy. Would you pray with me? Father God, we hear in this passage that you're worthy. At the same time, we hear that we are not worthy. And so we need your help. Help us, oh God. Help us in a religious subculture here in the United States of America. Help us not to be casual as we approach this King, our Savior, the worthy Lord. Lord, we confess now that you're worthy, far more worthy than just getting dressed up and coming to a place and singing some songs and then going home. Lord, you are worthy of everything. We worship you through our giving. We worship you in how we serve. We worship you in how we sing and how we love. Lord, we worship you in how we talk to one another, how we are hospitable and we welcome one another. Lord, we worship you with our work because you're worthy of our nine-to-five jobs. Lord, we worship you in how we relate to our spouse or to our children or to our friends or to our neighbors, all of this, Lord, we confess, is an act of worship to you. For you are worthy. So, Lord, help us to worship you, the worthy one, today and this week, to the glory of your name. Amen. Church family, let's stand now and let's sing to our worthy King.